Blog Talk Radio. blood pumping that, that lively <laughs> lively drive through hr intro music welcome yeah. uh, everyone to drive through hr it is october 21st 2020 and uh i am uh host number one robin schooling along with host number two michael vandervoort hello michael always hello robin number two always tries harder as they used to say it hurts or whatever, whatever it was so <laughs> i i can't believe this I, I literally can't believe this. When I lived in Atlanta, every time we did a show, the guys would come by with leaf blowers. Today, they're yeah. building a new house next door to mine, and a, a guy just pulled up and started a land grader to move dirt around. So if you hear <laughs> weird noises, I'll try to go on mute. <laughs> anyway, outside of the craziness of life like that, I'm okay. I'm doing okay, and it's 10 days till Halloween and, what, 13 days until we elect a new president, hopefully. Yep. So, um, yep. Count, not that I'm counting or anything. And we, you know, uh, kind of to give a little precursor before we hop into our, our guests. We usually don't do the precursors, but on on election day, which is a Tuesday, which is our sort of traditional day for a show, we are doing an uh, election day special show with our guest Torn Ellis. So uh, mm-hmm. that should be a, a an interesting uh, discussion while we are in the midst of voting, but. Uh, anyway, that's a, that's that's in you know two weeks, uh, twelve days. So we got a while for that. Today's guest, uh, we are thrilled to have on the air talking with us. So first time guest here on on the drive through, and uh, that's Chip Weatherby. Hey, Chip. Hey, Robin. Hi, Michael. Hey, Chip. So what's uh, what's happening in your world today, this week? Um, same old stuff, um, <laughs> deal, dealing with the craziness of COVID and, you know, just juggling all the different work stuff, uh, yeah, yeah, union yeah, requests well. for information, all of that. Typical, see, and and that's a, that's a beautiful answer because it, um, today's show is, uh, you know, somewhat akin to the shows that we've done for ten and a half years now, which is really kind of the the, the origins of Drive Through HR and it's to have conversations with people who are doing the work. And you do the work day in and day out. You are um a longtime HR uh, practitioner and leader and uh for our listeners who don't know you, um g- give everybody a little bit of sense of who Chip is. You know, what what's your story? What's your background? How'd you end up in this crazy mm-hmm. world? Well, I grew up in New Hampshire. Uh, my wife and I, about 15 years ago, made the decision to move to the Seattle area to get away from snow. Uh, probably the best decision we ever made in <laughs> our personal life. Uh, I've been in human resources for about 23 years. 
Uh, like many of us in the profession, I never intended to end up in the HR field. Uh, I actually, uh, for one year, I taught high school social sciences in New Hampshire. Uh, very quickly realized this isn't the profession for me. I'm never going to get up and have that enthusiasm to go teach and really be an effective uh, educator. So mm-hmm. I quit teaching uh, during the recession in the early 90s. So I ended up driving, working for a highway maintenance crew, driving a plow truck for a winter, which is an experience. If any of your <laughs> listeners have ever done it, they could attest to long, long hours, not going home for several days. Uh, but it, it was a really interesting year. Uh, from there, I moved into a clerical role with the state of New Hampshire. And when the HR assistant in the department I worked in got promoted, I kind of took over her position doing some of the basic uh, clerical HR stuff. Uh, at the same time, I was part of a team that was developing a formal certified public manager program for New Hampshire public sector employees. Uh, once that got launched, I was a participant in the first class of the program. And along with the required uh, curriculum they had, you also had to take some outside elective type courses. And I found an MBA level uh, human resources management course. And I took that and learned a whole lot more about what HR actually entails and realized this was really where I wanted to focus my career. So I continued to uh, work in the HR field. I eventually moved to a small community hospital. Uh, I worked there for a couple years with the most amazing boss and mentor who really was critical to me becoming the HR professional I am today. Uh, He encouraged me, helped me grow. Uh, He was the one who encouraged me to go look for other opportunities because I had outgrown the role at the hospital. So from there, I had a chance to move into my first leadership role with an opportunity to build an HR function for a company. Uh, After that, I spent three years working for a nonprofit that served the developmentally disabled. And that was a very rewarding part of my career. Uh, But then my wife and I were ready to move to Seattle. So we moved and I spent the next 14 years as the HR director for a beer distributor. Uh, you know, so 18 years of my career there, I was, you know, 14 years at the beer distributor and four before that, I was a one person department. Yeah. And, you know, I really missed over that time as much as I liked, loved my just last job. I really missed being part of a team uh, being able to rely on other team members to bounce ideas off of. And last October, I had an opportunity to move into my current role as the Senior Labor Relations Specialist for local uh, community-based health uh, organization. Uh, so it gave me a chance to get back to the nonprofit community healthcare world that I really valued early in my career. And, again, it gives me the opportunity to share perspectives and experiences and ideas with uh, team members when we're dealing with issues. Yeah. So, and I've been here for just about a year. Uh, Next week will be my year anniversary. And so I'm very happy to be part of this team. 
I love it. I love it. And, you know, and it's so, um, yes, I fell into HR, too, once upon a time. Um, and, and, you know, and I think you, you and I have had similar ex- experiences in that, you know, the, the fact that we've both been departments of one, which is a whole situation in itself, um, <laughs> rewarding and overwhelming and exhausting sometimes. Um, just like you, I've had the opportunity to go into several organizations and start up the HR function. Um, also rewarding and exhausting all at the same time. Um, <laughs> but that, you know, when I think about that that aspect of, you know, being, especially being the Department of One, but, but even more critically starting that HR function. Because um, because quite a few people, you know, will get that opportunity in their lives. What, you know, when you look back on on having that experience, what what's your advice to HR professionals who find themselves in that situation? Um, you know, what should they do when they go in as as the company's first HR staff member? I think first and foremost, you need to make sure you have a really strong generalist background. You know, you mm-hmm. need to have some exposure to recruiting and talent acquisition and onboarding, uh, policy and procedure development, uh, performance management, uh, having experience with uh, developing and coaching leaders. Uh, you know, all of that. If if you don't have a well-rounded generalist background, it's going to be very hard to establish a HR function as yeah. a new department or function. Uh, a couple other things I would strongly recommend is make sure you have a really good understanding of what management's looking for in the HR function. Are they just looking to transition the administrative pieces from the accountant or whoever's been doing that? Or are they really looking to commit to implementing HR initiatives and best practices? Yeah. Uh, you know, in the situation I faced, uh, you know, the organization had been working with an outside consultant, and one of the recommendations was bringing on an HR professional and actually implementing HR best practices. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, it's a family-owned business, and the Ownership and management were highly resistant to actually taking the steps to implement those. And, you know, I was stuck in a situation where it basically was an administrative role and not what I was looking for. Yeah. So I think that's critical, too. You know, know what you're getting into and what kind of commitment you have. Uh, and also <laughs> rely, on your, rely on your professional network. Mm-hmm. You are going to... Be overwhelmed if you're trying to create everything new. You know, there are so many talented people out there who have ideas and templates for policies and procedures and, you know, corrective action forms and best yeah. practices. And if you're trying to do that all yourself, you're just going to get overwhelmed and you're not going to be effective. You know, hopefully we've all developed these professional relationships where we can reach out and say, hey, this is what I'm dealing with. Can anybody provide me some guidance? Yep. And a big part of that is you also reciprocate that when people reach out to you. You share your knowledge and your resources. 
And then uh, just overall, but especially when you're starting a new department, is you have to build your trust with the management team. Mm-hmm. You know, we all know HR is considered the policy police, and, you know, you don't want to go to HR because they're going to tell you why you can't do something. And I've always taken the approach that I don't ever want to say no. I want to say yes, but have we considered mm-hmm. this? Mm-hmm. And you know, that, that in that situation, it didn't work well. But in my last position, I came in and I had the resistance to HR. Uh, and over time, I had to build that trust. You know, I would yep. say, okay, yeah, we can do that. Have you thought of these alternatives? Because if we do what you're suggesting, these are the potential repercussions. Yep. And because I was not always saying no, over time, they would actually come to me and say, this is what I was thinking, but tell me the risk. And if you think it's too mm-hmm. risky, I've got some other ideas. Mm-hmm. So, especially starting a department, that's uh, probably going to be the biggest advice to help ensure success. Yeah. That, and, and, you know, that's being – what what we all say we want to be right that's that's being the true the, the partner to the business that's being the subject matter expert right. it's sitting side by side with our our peers in other departments and 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 solving things together yep oh love it right yep. yeah. and and just letting them understand you want to help them accomplish their goals but you mm-hmm. just to make sure we're exploring all avenues to do that successfully. Yep. Interesting. So, so Chip, it's uh, it's really rare, uh, given the work that I do, which is in labor relations. It's it's really rare for us to have a guest on who actually has labor relations in their title. I guess we're sort of a rare breed of cat or something these days. I but, think you uh, are. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, the, the uh, you know, the overall, I guess, public sector and private sector combined, I think union is, labor union density is about 11%, and it's under, I think it's under yeah. 6% in the private sector. So, um, yeah, there's not that many people that are doing labor relations. So my, my first question for you is, how did you wind up doing labor relations when it's such a rare thing these days? Well, my last position with the beer distributor, they were represented by the Teamsters, so that okay. was my real first experience working with a union. And, again, I was going there for, for 14 the, going years. Going for the big gun union, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. And, and, again, coming from the East Coast, Teamsters had a, you know, a reputation. So I was a little apprehensive going into it. But, you know, I developed some really good partnerships with the union uh, business agents I worked with. And, you know, so I – That was just a piece of my job uh, at that organization, but it was something I kind of enjoyed. I enjoyed the negotiations and building the relationships and, Mm. you know, being able to, you know, work with them to accomplish what we as an organization wanted to accomplish and Mm. still follow the CBA and make sure our staff or our employees were being treated correctly and, you know, so I enjoyed that part. So when I had the opportunity to take this position I'm in now with the focus on labor relations, I felt it was a really good fit. 
Are you okay with saying what union you deal with, or would you rather not? I understand. Just, I'm um, just curious. Right now, we're dealing with uh, SEIU Healthcare. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they may be the more, most formidable union going these days, given yes. the, mm-hmm. the, the amount of organizing that's in healthcare. Um, so you're, you live, and I'm, I'm switching up this little, the script question we had is that, so you live in an, in an area that over the last four or five years could easily be, maybe even a little longer than that, easily be described as kind of one of the hotbeds of union activity, even though it's not necessarily traditional like relations. You guys are kind of the, the birthplace of the $15 an hour uh, with yep. the, the the local local or yeah, state city attempts to drive labor statutes and stuff. A lot of stuff going on in kind of a, a weird laboratory condition. So I'm curious, like, you know, how how has labor changed? And especially, as I'd be interested in hearing it from your kind of on the ground in Seattle perspective. I, mean, I think probably one of the biggest changes is, and it's reflected in the declining membership nationally is they really have had to pivot to start demonstrating value to members and demonstrating mm-hmm. a reason why people should pay dues to be represented by a labor organization. I, like you said, the $15 minimum wage, uh, other various labor laws, Seattle's put in place paid time off. All of those things have traditionally been something unions have had to fight for. And between mm. government uh, regulations that are providing a lot of those things and employers who compared to 50 years ago are actually more committed to doing right by their employees. It's lessened the need for a union. So they've had to pivot and find other ways that they're able to add value to their members. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, things I've seen, they're a lot more willing to partner with the employer than they used to be in the past. You know, they recognize that just being 100% adversarial is not going to help them grow membership and be successful. And they realize that employers have to be profitable or, you know, in the nonprofit world, at least be breaking even to continue to hire people who will be members. Yeah. Uh, And I also think they've developed a much stronger focus on social issues like Black Lives Matters and the Me Too movement and EDI Mm -hmm. efforts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it it is. And and there's the the organizing that's going on right now in things like digital newsrooms and other sort of non-coffee shops all over the country, although only Starbucks minimally. Um, there's just it, they're they're going after different sectors. Uh, they, they, to your point, they definitely have sort of a different agenda. However, they're definitely trying to drive a lot of traditional labor stuff in this election, so that when this when we vote in a couple of weeks and we know the results in a couple of months or whatever's going to happen, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I I don't know. <laughs> it, it, you know this this is a very pivotal election for labor labor, labor unions and, and really employers I think because it'll. It'll change the dynamic uh, quite a bit if, the, if if things switch over to the Dems. Um, so yeah. anyway, that this little piece of non-question uh, commentary. The other thing I'm curious is actually right now, even though their labor relations, labor unions are dying out, there actually seems to be a little bit of a shortage of experienced labor relations professionals. So 
why do you think that HR people of today seem to be scared to go into into labor relations or have anything to do with it? I, I think, uh, again, like I mentioned, the perception of labor unions, uh, which isn't always accurate in today's world, but, you know, like I said, growing up on the East Coast, you, what you heard about the Teamsters was mm. not really conducive to a partnership with employers. Uh, and I, I think just by nature, it's an adversarial relationship. And a lot of people, even HR professionals, don't like conflict. They find it intimidating. And, mm-hmm. I mean, you have to sit down across the table and bargain over working conditions and wages. And it, get, it gets very contentious at times. And you have mm-hmm. grievances which can, you know, your decisions are being attacked. Every time mm-hmm. you go through a grievance hearing, you're being attacked. And yep. if you don't have a really thick skin and the ability to separate the personal from the business side and realize mm-hmm. they're just doing their job just like you are, it, it can be very intimidating to people. And I think also just the fear of loss of control and flexibility because mm-hmm. everything's dictated by the CBA. You can't deal with employees on an individual basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Um, I, you know, I've done a number of labor agreements over the years and they're kind of like chess matches when you're in it. It's, it, it's very intense. It's very interesting. You're trying to yes. win stuff from somebody, but you can't really just beat them. Right. You, you don't, you don't treat it like yep. a, a life or death. It, it requires some nuance. Um, I'm also a firm believer that yep. employers who manage their companies well without labor unions have the have the best environment right now so that they can deal directly yes. with employees if they do it in a fair way. Yep. But um, it's not always the case. Um, and anyway, more editorializing. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I was really curious to talk to you. And um, I know somebody that does hospital, uh, someone else, Marilla Marsh, who, who I know through Sherm, is up in your area. I don't know if you've ever met her, but she has something like 21 different collective bargaining agreements in her hospital. Oh, wow. I would die. (laughs) Yeah. We're lucky to have the one. (laughs) Yeah, one is bad enough. Yeah, I've had um, CBAs at two two employers, uh, two different companies, um, and uh, I, I enjoyed it. Um, just because in both instances, well, obviously the first first time was new. The second time was like, oh, I can deal with these people. Um, but I, I kind of had to laugh because the, <clears throat> yeah, the the concept of the grievances, and I'll never forget it. Uh, this these were in the days of paper, right? So um, the grievance would come to me in um, triplicate, and I can still remember, you know, my copy was the pink copy because whenever I had all this pink paper laying around my office, I knew. <laughs> I knew there was work to be done. So, yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting aspect of HR. Um, I kind of want to pick up on one thing you mentioned, Chip, which was, you know, that whole concept of of the unions looking to um, demonstrate their value, or you know, and kind of veering into these different areas of conversation. And I think the um, you know the fight for fifteen was certainly one of one of their their entree points into it. But you know, twenty twenty, the year of the year of shit. Let's just call it that, right? Um, <laughs> is is also kind of this year of of social reckoning, and so it does kind of 
fit into some of these conversations that I think um, unions, as we've talked about, are, are having as well. But, you know, here in the U.S., right, you know, everything's politicized, you know, from yes, wearing sir. masks to whatever. But, you know, talking about racial justice and Black Lives Matter and that sort of thing, um, you, you, as we know you, um, you know, you, you're out there. You wear your beliefs. Um, of kind of where you stand on some of these issues, you know, very publicly. Um, how do you, how does that balance, you know, how how have you personally kind of found that balance, you know, to be able to say, I'm uh, I'm an HR professional, but I'm I'm speaking up publicly or I'm saying this, um, and why is that important to you, and how is that important for other HR professionals? Well, personally, for me, uh, you know, and I wasn't always outspoken. Uh, growing up, being very introverted and, you know, shy, I was afraid of offending people or damaging relationships. So I, <laughs> it took a while before I became willing to speak my mind. And, yeah. you know, I think going back to how it relates to being a human resources professional, I think I look at my integrity and my ethics and I think being true to those are ultimately in line with what being a human resources professional is all about. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I've always tried to work at places that mirrored my ethics and my, you know, beliefs. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, you know, personally, I've always been fascinated by history and politics. I've read extensively on it and that, that got me learning a lot more about, you know, what's happened in the past, how it relates to what's happening currently. Mm-hmm. And, you know, also I've recognized I'm an extremely privileged individual. I'm a white middle-class straight male. I mean, other than being rich, uh, you know, I've got the lottery <laughs> on privilege. You're, you're ticking the boxes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, it, it, that, provides me with a level of safety that other people don't have. And Mm -hmm. to me, I just think, you know, I'm in a position where I need to take advantage of that safety to speak on behalf of people who don't have that same privilege and, you know, not, not speak on their behalf. That's not the right, you know, share their message and yeah. share their struggle and support their struggles. Yeah. And personally, I've always thought just staying quiet and not speaking up about injustice and really accepting it. And I think it, it, that ties into human resources. We have to be willing mm-hmm. to stand up to, you know, our leadership team in certain areas mm-hmm. and say, you know, this is not right. We need to consider changing something or, you know, we we can't do this because it's just not ethically correct. And yep. if we can't do that, then we really can't be the best human resources professionals that we can be or should be. Mm-hmm. Well said. I I I agree with that. <laughs> every word that that just came out of your mouth and I think it's um I think there's been a shift in in HR folks this year, sort of coming to that same. More and more HR folks coming to that realization, so that's uh, that's a good thing out of 2020. Um, 
we are getting close to the end, y'all. Uh, we, we're down to just a, a, a few minutes left. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you a lightning question here, Chip. This is this is your your you got one minute to pontificate on sports because you're a big sports fan, mm. right? Uh, yeah. If you could watch only one sport for the rest of the rest of time, what would it be and why? That that's a tough ask. Uh, <laughs> I would probably say football for several reasons. Uh, one, because they only play once a week, uh, so it's not the time suck that watching other sports can be. <laughs> <laughs> and my wife likes me to spend time with her instead of watching sports. So that that would be one reason for football. And I I just find football to be one of the most enjoyable watching experiences. I say, uh, I say, Amen. Go Saints. There's, there's, there's the bye football thing. I say so, hockey and and God bless Tampa Bay. <laughs> now, 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 if it was watching in person, hockey would uh, absolutely be my there we choice. Go. Well, we've Nothing got, we've got, uh, we've got a. We've got a quick go out here, so Chip, let everybody know, let our listeners know how how they can find you online and connect with you. Okay, well, I keep I keep my handles pretty basic. Uh, my Twitter handle is Chip Weatherby, and that's C H I P W E A T H E R B E E, and LinkedIn the same. It's LinkedIn slash in slash Chip Weatherby. <laughs> Fantastic, and um, yep, everybody follow Chip on uh, on Twitter. He's he's out there quite a lot and, and having good conversations. And we are to the end here, guys. Thank you, Chip, so much. Thank you, Michael, thanks, and Chip. thanks to everyone go, for listening to Drive Through HR. <laughs> Bye. Thank you both for having Bye. me.